The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome again, Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're just visiting us, we are studying the last book of the Christian scriptures, the book of Revelation. And today we come to one of the most important teaching in all of Christianity. 
Um, how's it all going to end, right? I'm gonna pray. We're gonna jump right into it this morning. Father, um, I thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word, revealing your intentions for the world, your intentions for all of creation, um, that you've revealed those intentions to us through your word. And this helps us live rightly now. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me this morning. You'd think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me, that you would help me um, share what you've uh, given us and you would uh, inspire us, correct um, improper ideas that we have of the future, correct those today um, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how is it all going to end what is the telos, the ultimate object or aim of the world, of human beings and the entirety of creation? Are we headed somewhere? Or are we all just existing, waiting for things to get too far away from the sun and either freeze to death or too close to the sun and burn to death? Now, I was raised to believe that heaven was the goal. That heaven was the ultimate finish line towards which we were striving for. Now, I know many in our world and many in this room today believe the same. For many of us, heaven is a spiritual place where the souls of good human beings go to do good spiritual things. What type of things do they do in heaven, mom? is where we usually fumble the answer. Most of us, if I asked you, what kind of things do you do in heaven? Well, I think we ride clouds. I think we take a lot of naps. I think we play harps. Somehow we learn to play harps. <laughs> and maybe we watch over family members down here on earth, right? Now, I have to tell you, I have never personally been impressed by this vision of heaven. In fact, I find it quite boring, completely unappealing, not compelling at all. Um, now, of course, it does sound a whole lot better than the alternative, right? Uh, unfortunately, I think many people have been more scared of hell than they have been compelled by the beauty of heaven to enter into the kingdom of God, right? Heaven, nebulous, boring, hell, burning flesh, I'll avoid that place, right? Strange thing is hell is barely described in the Bible. It's called the lake of fire several times, but it never gets a whole chapter, let alone two chapters devoted to it like heaven does here in the next two chapters, and yet our imaginations seem to be far more captured by hell than they are of heaven. And I think that's a problem. See, the avoidance of pain is one motivator for choosing to love God, but it is not even close to being meant to be the primary motivator for loving God. So what I want to do this morning is to help us see what the Bible actually teaches about heaven, which is pretty compelling. And the Apostle John is going to give it to us here in chapter 21 of the book of Revelation. And I think what we're going to discover this morning is how different heaven is than what you actually think it is. All right? So basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you five ways heaven isn't what you think it is. It's actually better. Okay? And when I discovered this about a decade ago, it really, it, it changed my life. It changed the way that I viewed the eternal life. It changed the way that I view my everyday life because what we believe about heaven shapes how we live in our world. And for most of us, or for mo I'm sorry, for most of my younger years, I had an emaciated concept of heaven that I'd received from the American culture and not from my Bible. And so my bet is that a large majority of us this morning possess the same unbiblical ideas of eternity. So here we go. We're going to unpack 
five ways heaven isn't what you think it is. It actually is better right from Revelation 21. Let's get after it. Number one, heaven is more like a remodel than new construction. Heaven is more like a remodel than new construction. Look at verse five in chapter 21. And he was seated on the throne, this is Jesus, said, behold, we've said this a bunch already today. Jesus says, I am making all things new. Now, there's two ways to interpret that. What Jesus says there, I'm making all things new. This is one of the great promises of heaven. Everything's going to be new. That's what we want, right? We want everything to be made new. But there's two ways to understand that. One, that God is going to demolish everything, right? Annihilate everything. Take it all to the cosmic dump, if you will and then start over from scratch like he did in the beginning, ex nihilo, out of nothing, so destroy what is and create what is going to be. This is what many people believe about heaven. I've heard Christians say, it doesn't matter how we treat the environment. God's just going to give us a new one anyway. It doesn't matter how I eat or exercise or treat my body. I'm going to get a new one anyway. This is kind of like the hell in the handbasket, hands-off approach, right? It's all going to hell in a a handbasket. Let's just see how this thing plays out. Just sit back and let it ride, right? But there's another way of interpreting Jesus' work of making all things new. And what I believe it is, I think it's the correct view. It's more in line with what Jesus is teaching here. The Greek word for new, when he says, I am making all things new, and in verse verse 1 of chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That Greek word new is the Greek word here. It's it's kainos. It's kainos. Now listen, biblical scholar G.K. Beale says this, kainos refers predominantly to a change in quality or essence rather than something new that has never previously been in existence before, okay? So when Jesus is saying, I'm making all things new, he's saying, I'm making all things qualitatively new, right? Not, I mean, creating something brand new that's never been in existence. Now, what does that mean for us? That means that the substance of heaven, think about this, the substance of heaven is already present in creation. Now, this should make sense to us. God has created the world to point to this. God has created the world to hint at this reality. Just look at the caterpillar. You didn't think you'd think about heaven if you look at the caterpillar, would you? Think about the caterpillar. The caterpillar, it just blows my mind that the thing wraps itself up becomes caterpillar soup and then becomes a butterfly, fights its way out. A complete resurrection right right in in this creation. Now, when it it goes, that metamorphosis, right, from a caterpillar caterpillar to a butterfly, it is being destroyed. It is destroyed falling away, it is being deformed, decreated, but it is being recreated out of its original substance, right? That's what's going on. So in the same way will the old heavens and the old earth pass away before changing into the new creation, but it's made out of the same stuff. Just as carbon is converted into a diamond, this old earth will be changed into a new creation. Just as Jesus' physical earthly body was resurrected and changed into a new physical new creation body, the old passes away and the new comes. Now, what does that mean for us? What that means for us is that while we are in this world and what we do every day matters for eternity. Please hear me. 
What you do in this body matters for eternity. What you do in your everyday life matters for eternity. We can be working for Jesus' restoration plan of the universe, or we can be working against his plan for renewal. Think about it like this. I, I like to remodel homes. I actually have a construction company on the side. It's one of my pat. I like to do it. I enjoy it. I've done it a long time. And sometimes when I'm restoring homes, I have to gut them all the way down to the studs. Now, think about it. Think if my kids came in and said, hey, dad's remodeling this house. It doesn't matter how we treat it. Let's break the windows. Let's knock out the walls. Let's, let's burn it down. Now that would be foolish, right? Especially if the windows and the walls were in decent, decent condition and I actually wasn't planning to remodel those, right? No, see, as my kids, I hope, hope that they would work with my efforts of restoration, not against them. The same is true for us. Listen, Christians should be the most passionate people about working for renewal in our world. We should be renewing homes and renewing neighborhoods and renewing educational systems. When the Christian sees broken things, we should not be making them worse. We should not be lighting matches. We should be working to restore them, working to ameliorate ills and pains and broken things because that's what Jesus is all about. He's making all things new. And so if you're a Christian, you've been grafted into that mission to make things new. So the first way heaven, heaven isn't the way you think it is, is that heaven is actually a remodel. It's not brand new construction. And another implication from that reality is, listen, new construction is beautiful. It's, it is beautiful. But isn't there something special about restoration, right? Taking something that was broken, that wasn't functioning well, that was ugly, that was tired, that was dated, that was marred. Isn't there something special about before and after pics, <laughs> right? Like you walk in and go, wow, it was amazing. Now it's cool to create it from scratch, but that's the easy way. What's hard is to take something broken and make it beautiful, right? Now, why is that? Why do we gravitate? Why do we have this pull towards restoration rather than new construction? Well, I think it's because we have an echo in our soul, a divine fingerprint of God, that the story of God is everything was beautiful and then it became marred and it was broken and now Christ is making all things new. And so deep in our soul that's been made in the image of God, the story of God reverberates in our soul. There's an echo there. That every time you see something that was ugly and it's been made beautiful, something in your soul connects to that thing. It's an echo of eternity. Now, the second and the third way, heaven isn't what you think it is, are in verses 2 and 10. Let me go ahead and read those. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Okay, second way. Heaven is actually a city, not a celestial siesta. I like those words. Heaven is actually a city, not a celestial siesta. So not the, not the nap on a cloud, right? Now this reality should really change so much of what we think about the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity is not going to be spent floating on a cloud, doing disembodied things, just the opposite. Heaven is going to feel like life in a city. Now, that might bother some of you, especially you country folks, All right? And it's been said, well, 
the new heavens and new earth is a restored garden of Eden. Well, kind of. But what you actually find is that the garden was always meant to become a city. Always. See, cities, you have more of the image of God per square inch than anywhere else on the planet. See, human beings are made in the image of God, and cities are when you get the image of God collective together to do good things together. And what we see is that heaven, or the new heavens and new earth, is a city. Now, it is a holy city, okay? So some of you country folk who hate the city, this is good for you because it's a holy city, right? What does that mean? All the negative aspects of the city that have been caused by sin will be removed. No crime, no poverty, no pollution, no traffic, no potholes. <laughs> but all of the benefits of the city will remain. Actually, they won't just remain. Listen, the, he, uh, Herman Bavink. Uh, said it like this, all of the good, all of the benefits of the city, listen, they will be renewed, recreated, boosted to their highest glory. We see that in verse 24. Look at this. This is interesting. I want you to go to verse 24. By its light will the nations walk. Will the nations, by the light of the city, this new heavenly city, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Listen, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will still be nations and there still will be kings and these nations and kings will bring into the city the glory and the honor of nations. Now, what that means is Oh my goodness, it's so exciting. That means heaven is going to have the best every culture of the world has to offer. People often say to me, we even sang it today actually, that, you know, we're gonna sing for eternity. People often say to me, that sounds so boring. Well, first off, you have to remember that there is no temple, right? There is no church gathering like this. So we're going to be singing out there somewhere, right? To me, it's like when, I, I, when I'm going 30 miles an hour down a mountain on my mountain bike and I'm saying, thank you, Lord. I'm singing about his creation I'm in, as I'm enjoying it. And when we see this right here, I want you to think about this. What if you could sing in a thousand languages? What if you could Sing to a thousand rhythms and a thousand styles. What if you could dance like an African or a Samoan or a professional ballet dancer? See, this is what John is getting across here. Heaven is going to be the most eclectic cultural mixing pot the world has ever experienced. It is going to be absolute unity in diversity. The best that all the kings could bring in, every culture of the world, bringing in their food. Mm. Bringing in their libations, bringing their drink concoctions. If you've ever been... You know what? I love coffee. And one of the things I love about coffee is every country I go to does it differently. You got to try this. You got to try this. I'm like, okay. Oh, this is amazing. You find out actually a bat has digested that and that's what made It's been recreated. It's glorious. I don't understand the process, but it made it good. Right? Listen. Heaven is going to be the city with the best art, the best poetry, the best fiction, the best entertainment, all max 
maximized and boosted in ineffable glory towards the worship of the one true God. It will not be boring at all. Yes. <laughs> we also see our third way. Heaven isn't what you think it is from these same verses. Listen, what does he say about heaven? It comes down. It isn't taking us up. It's not a Star Trek heaven. Did you notice that from our text? The new city comes down out of heaven. It isn't beaming people up to heaven. That means eternity isn't going to be spent in heaven at all, actually. Eternity is going to be spent in the new heavens and the new earth on this renewed planet, inside a renewed cosmos. In fact, as we see in verse 23, in this new heavens and new earth, there's no longer need for the sun or the moon. Think about that. What does that mean? Scholar G.K. Beale says this. What, what we're seeing here is a radically changed cosmos involving not merely ethical renovation, but transformation of the fundamental cosmic structure, including the physical elements. Now, what does that mean? Here's the best illustration I could come up with. <clears throat> In the movie, The Matrix, <clears throat> Neo can get uploaded into a computer system, right? The and he can, he can, they can literally plug something in and download anything he wants into his consciousness. And then inside the matrix, he can do that thing. So he downloads Kung Fu. And he looks at Morpheus and he says, I know Kung Fu. And Morpheus says, show me. And they go inside the matrix and, bah, bah, da, 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 and they can do all, they're like, it's amazing, right? It's amazing what they're doing. And then Morpheus beats up Neo, puts him in his place. And Neo's bent over going, <sighs> and Morpheus says, do you think that's air you're breathing now? And you get this moment of like, oh, wait, I'm in a computer program. I'm not tired. That's my mind telling me I'm tired. And that's what, I'm, that's what I see when I'm hearing this new created cosmos. Will there be gravity? Right? Will we need to eat? Probably not, but we'll enjoy it. Right? Will we get tired? Probably not. Will the cosmos work on the same rules that this cosmos does? Obviously not. We can also see this by Jesus. Jesus' new created cosmos body showed up and could walk through walls, then sit down on a chair and eat fish. Still had scars, still had wounds, but could whatever enter into that dimension and this dimension? I don't know how it works, right? Right? It's going to have completely different rules. Who knows what we'll be able to do? Maybe we will fly. I bet we will. <laughs> Jesus could walk on water. Maybe we can. Maybe we could do like, more, like Neo and we could learn a new skill in a day. I would like to learn how, whatever it is, to whittle something. <laughs> Boom, did it. That was great, right? You can YouTube it in the morning and be a master by the afternoon. <laughs> now listen. In Romans, the Apostle Paul says that the creation that we're in right now, this earth, that it's actually lying in ruins. That it is, quote, subjected to decay and it is crying out for renewal. It's crying out for the day where Christ comes back and says who his people are and, and restores all things. Listen, if you've ever stood on the beach and looked out at the ocean and you're just in awe, that is the creation in ruins. If you've ever stood on the top of a 14er in Colorado and you look across just nothing but peaks. And you're like, whoa, this is creation in ruin. If you've ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looked out and said, oh my goodness, how majestic, that is majesty in ruins. 
you've ever looked, even in Iowa, across a spring or summer sunset over the cornfields, and it's purple and pink and beautiful. That's, you know, we get about five minutes of that. And it's beautiful, and that's majesty in ruins. If you think about this, this is God's creation in ruins. What's his upgrade going to look like? What's version two going to look like? What's the renewal and restored new creation going to look like? You're not going to be going, but is there Fortnite there? Whoa. <laughs> right? Like, technology isn't going to have that kind of pull on you. Somebody felt that one in their soul. Man. Fourth. Whoa. I am killing it right now. Fourth. The new creation. I've only got five to go, so I'm through three. The fourth, the new creation is defined by presence before it's defined by absence. I think this is exactly backwards to, the, to most of the way that we think about eternity. We think about absence first. When you talk about heaven, don't we always lead like this? The absence of sin, the absence of pain, the absence of grief, the absence of loss. And indeed, those things are removed. Verse 6 shows us no more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. They have all passed away. Praise God. All of these negative things are actually represented by the sea being removed in verse 1. And ancient thought, the sea rec rep represented everything evil, everything out of control, everything chaotic of the world. And when you see the sea being removed, that's a symbolic representation of all evil, all pain, all chaos being removed from the earth. But the new creation is much more than just the absence of negativity. It's actually going to be, and this is what makes heaven heaven. This is what makes the new creation new in a sense. It's going to be the dwelling place of God with man. See, God's presence is actually the greatest thing about the new creation. Look at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In, in some ways, we felt the God forsakenness of this earth, right? When floods ravage the world, tornadoes rip apart things, tsunamis, the damage of war, the damage of terrorism, domestic or foreign. We feel like a, a God absence. We feel a God forsakenness. We cry out, where are you, God, in these moments? But in the new heavens and the new earth, it is now the dwelling place of God with man. There will never, we'll never feel the God forsakenness again. We'll never feel the absence of God again, a distance from God again. And in one sense, Joel said, on that day when we see the Lord, it will be the best day of our life. Now, in one sense, that's true. But in one, another sense, it's not true enough. Because on this earth, we open the birthday presents and it's the best moment and then it dwindles from there. We see our wife and then it dwindles from there. We get married and then it dwindles from there. Right? We get our baby and then it dwindles from there. <laughs> right? Glory leaks, glory fades, but not so in the new heavens and the new earth. We have the moment, the next moment's better. The next moment's better. The next moment's better. We see the sunset, the next sunset's better. The next sunset's better. Oh my goodness, that's what it means to be God. You get to outdo yourself every day. 
God's hand. Look at God's. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It's interesting here. Before there are no more tears. No more tears show up in verse 6. Before there are no more tears. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. What is God's touch? What is that going to be like? God's hand or thumb on your cheek. What's that going to feel like? We will finally, this is what John's getting at, Jesus is showing. We will finally have everything we've been searching for. The deepest longings of our soul. The, the longing for unconditional and eternal love. The desire to belong to a people where you are perfectly known and perfectly loved the desire to have eternal value and to last forever. All of these deep longings met. And also, all of the other like kind of superficial longings too. The longing for the perfect cup of coffee. We long for that. Like the, the perfect cup of coffee, you need no creamer, okay? Just let you know, right? The longing for the perfect steak. If you're like me, this is what keeps you going to different places. Right? Where is it at? Is it, is it, oh, I think I got it. Right? The longing for the perfect fill in the blank. We will have it in heaven in the presence of God. Now, don't you don't you desire this? Don't you want to experience this? This is what you were made for. Don't let anyone ever tell you you were made for less. This is why we're so unsatisfied most of the time in this world. The people who are most dissatisfied with this life, they, they should be looking towards heaven, but usually what the reason they're so dissatisfied with this experience is because they're looking for heaven now. And it won't give them what they want. The kids just won't give them the meaning that they promised before we had the kids. Right, parents? If you have these children, you're going to have deep and meaningful Right? You're, you're going to have deep and meaningful connection there. You're going to feel complete and whole. Being a parent is just, oh, just a picture of the gospel. And then you have them. And it is a picture of the gospel, right? The first half, <laughs> the fall of man, right? Where sinners do sinful things to other sinners, and it's just a sin soup, Right? That wasn't a theological term. I came up with that one right there. Right? That's what it feels like, though, most of the time. Now, what's going on? We're trying, we have this desire for the perfect experience, satisfaction, whatever you want to call it, and we're trying to tap it in a created thing. And we're always unsatisfied, and we leave. Here's the thing. If you, were, if you were made with a gas tank that can only run on God and you tap that into your children, you will drain them dry. You will burn them up. You'll be always wondering, why don't you fill me up? Why don't you satisfy my soul? And you will die a million deaths as they go off to college and they gain independence. Or even worse, you will create dependent little people that you have to be latched onto for your whole life. And you just keep remodeling homes and build out a little place in the basement for them. Keep them there for the rest of their life. (laughs) 
Listen. Why do we have these desires that we try to tap into eternity and all these created things? Because you were created to tap into God. You were created to know God and be in his presence in the new heavens and the new earth. You are not just a result of an unguided evolutionary process that it's on its way to extinction when the sun burns out. No, you were made by God to live with God in his eternal city forever. That leads me to my last point. How do you get in on this? It's probably not how you think. See, most people that I talk to in our city, they live their life like there is this fuzzy line between good and evil. And what's important is that you try to keep yourself above said fuzzy line so you can go to heaven when you die. That's not how Jesus teaches us to enter into the city of God. He doesn't say, listen, Jesus doesn't say here to the achievers, to the hard workers, to the morally upright, to the choir boys and girls, to the go-getters, to the to-do list crushers, to the hashtag blessed. Hashtag crushing goals. It's not what Jesus says here. Look at verse six. And he said to me, it's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty. To the thirsty. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. That one sentence tells you how to get in. First, it's to the thirsty. Jesus here is kind of riffing off of his conversation with the woman at the well. You remember, he meets her. She's had a bunch of husbands. She's been sleeping around. She's with a guy now. She's sleeping with him. She's not married to him. And she's thirsty. And Jesus says, hey, I'll give you water that you'll, if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. She doesn't interpret it. She doesn't understand what he means. Oh, yeah, where is this thing at? I want that. And he goes, well, go get your husband. Oof. Jesus gospel sniper. <laughs> Gets her right where she's at. What was he doing? See, you have a thirst that needs quenching and you're trying to quench the thirst. You're tapping into your desire for connection and communion and meaning. You're trying to tap that desire through men. You think the next man or the present man is where you're going to find your meaning and your value. He's finally going to give you the love you're looking for and you've been with all these men and it's never worked and you're with one now and it's still not going to work. I can give you water and if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. I can quench your soul. In Revelation, I can give you the water, the, what does he call it? The water of life. The spring of the water of life. The water that satisfies your soul. Now, the fascinating thing is, okay, Jesus, I, I want that. She says, yes, give it to me. But the fascinating thing is, how did Jesus earn it for her? How did Jesus actually go and get the water of life and give it to her? It wasn't just a prayer that he prayed in the moment. No, Jesus had to go fetch the water in a sense. And how did he fetch the water? Well, we, look, we just follow along in the gospel of John, a few more chapters, and we see Jesus being betrayed and we see Jesus being crucified and we see Jesus having a crown of thorns placed on his head. And Jesus in this moment cries out, what? I thirst. 
See, it was in that moment where Jesus traded places with the woman at the well. She was thirsty and needed quenched. He became thirsty so, she, so he could quench her thirst. And it's there on the cross that Jesus traded places with us. He felt what it was like to be a soul that was thirsty and to have his father, the eternal fount, have his father turn away from him in that moment, rejecting him in that moment because Jesus took our sin on himself. And so the father turns his face away and Jesus cries out, I'm thirsty. And the father, the great well of the river of life is not there in that moment. See, that's the dehydration, the soul death that Jesus felt on the cross. First time he's ever felt a disconnect between him and the Father. First time he ever went to put his mouth on the fountain and receive nourishment and the fountain was dried up or the fountain was turned away. And he did that so that you could drink the water. That's why he did it. That's the only way into Eternal life. Now we can taste that water now, but we're gonna, it's going to be off and on for us. Our experience is going to be constantly off and on because we sin and we keep messing up and we forget and we do all these dumb things. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll have the water forever. We'll have the source forever. And look what happens because of this. Verse 7. The one, I, this is just to the thirsty, okay? Here's the offer, to the thirsty. Verse seven, the one who conquers. Whoa, what just happened there? Only in Christianity, like this is the easiest hurdle to get into the kingdom of God. Are you thirsty? Will you drink Christ? I will. And then Jesus goes, to the one who conquers. What the? <laughs> I was thirsty and took a drink to the one who conquers. That's the label we get. This is why in Romans chapter 8, we're called more than conquerors through Christ who gives us his strength, right? We conquer through our faith. Faith is nothing more than, re than saying, I'm thirsty, I need your water. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. She will be my daughter. It's a thirst that leads to an adoption into the family of God. Now, I think one reason he did say to the one who conquers, and he's going to later say you have to be courageous, is because to, to lean all of your life onto that takes courage. I'm not going to rest in my own works and my own ability to pull myself up by my bootstraps and wake myself early in the morning and go hard all day and crush my goals and do everything and be the man or the woman that I, I want to be. I don't put my weight on that. I put my weight on Christ and what he's done for me, I think that's very hard to do. And that's why he goes on and he says this, but as, and it's weird that he lumps this together, as for the cowardly, the faithless. They lead, this is not a procession you want to lead. Here's the procession, cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. They're going to the lake that burns with fire. Do you see who leads the procession? Cowardly. Faithless. Jesus doesn't say, go out there and prove yourself. Go out there and make your way. Go out there and prove to the world that you're somebody. Jesus says, are you thirsty? Will you drink? That's the call to the gospel this morning. Is your soul thirsty? Have you been drinking deeply of this world only to find yourself more and more thirsty? Drink Christ today.
you've not been baptized, now what that means is put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning and the work that he's done for you on the cross. Ask him to quench your spiritual thirst. And if you have been baptized, that means trusting again in Christ's love and work for you and remembering what he has already done for us by taking communion together. One of the ways that Jesus quenches our thirst is week in and week out coming to the Lord's Supper and saying once again, I thirst, I hunger, feed me. And every week, every week he's here. Every week he nourishes us, he feeds us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this chapter. I would confess that this is almost too good to be true. And I don't think we understand the gospel until we see that. It is too good to be true. And yet it's true. I pray even now through your spirit, you would call weary travelers, weary sojourners on this earth to just cry out, I'm thirsty, Lord. I'm trying to quench my thirst in so many different ways. My spouse, my kids, my grandkids, my money, my vacations, my retirement. Those are good things. They're not enough. I crave you. Father, I pray that you would meet us here now. Meet us in faith. Give faith. Give faith now, Father. Faith to believe and trust in Christ. And faith to eat the supper in faith, trusting in Christ. I pray that you'd glorify yourself among us. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.